If one of the hardest things to figure out these days is what to watch next, first of all, congrats. Second of all, you should check out HBO Max. Discover something new to watch on HBO Max like Lovecraft Country, the new HBO series from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams that's got everyone buzzing. Plus, HBO Max is the only place you'll find new binge-worthy Max originals like Selena Gomez's new cooking show. You heard that right. Selena Gomez's Learning to Cook, from some of the world's best chefs, no less. Find your next favorite all in one place on HBO Max. Start streaming today. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Cellular. Let's talk about your cell phone carrier. When you think about your plan, does what you're getting feel fair? When it comes to staying connected, don't settle. When you switch to U.S. Cellular, not only do you upgrade to fair, you're also joining a reliable network you can trust to have your back. No hidden requirements, no activation fees. Now that's fair. Learn more at uscellular.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher. This is a best of Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're going to play my interview with Edward Snowden, which originally aired in October 2019. He came on Recode Decode around the publication of his book, Permanent Record, six years after leaking highly classified information about America's cyber surveillance and espionage efforts. As I mentioned, this is one of our favorite episodes from the past five years, so you are listening to a rerun. But Vox Media and New York Magazine will be bringing you new interviews on this feed later this year, so please stay subscribed. You can still hear me twice a week on my other podcast, Pivot, with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway. Head over there for fresh, fun, smart conversations about tech and media and all of businesses' wins and fails and predictions for what comes next. Just search for Pivot in your podcast app of choice. But now, here's my interview with Edward Snowden from October 2019. We're broadcasting here from the Vox Media Podcast uh, headquarters, and we have a video connection. And uh, Edward might have some slides and things like that, which we will describe and also put up on the site. But let's just uh, dive right in. You've given uh, lots and lots of interviews about this book, and they've all been super interesting. We're going to focus a lot on tech and a lot on the tech industry uh, and where it's going uh, around privacy and some issues. Um, obviously, I covered it for many years, and uh, you obviously know quite a bit about this. So let's begin. Um, there's a couple of places. There's so many directions we could go in talking about tech, around privacy, about Russia and China. A couple of things I was struck by. Um, it was a quote by Alison Stanger that was written about you in one of the reviews, and I want, do want to quote from some of the book itself, which was that uh, you could see uh, Snowden could one day be seen as America's first traitor patriot, said political scientist Alison Stanger. And it was one of the reviews that I thought was quite good in the New York Review of Books. In May 2015, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, reversing an earlier opinion of a lower court, ruled that NSA's bulk collection of Americans Telephone metadata violated the terms of the Patriot Act. The next month, Congress passed the USA Freedom Act, which prohibited the NSA from collecting that metadata. Stanger argues that before 2015, Snowden was a leaker, but that after 2015, he was a whistleblower. It's a catch-22. If Snowden hadn't broken the law to point out the government had broken the law, what the government had done wouldn't have broken the law. 
so if you can follow that, um, I, I, I think you quite understand that. I want to get a sense of what you think you are, um, get, especially in the light of recent revelations about whistleblowers and the focus on them this past couple of months in the Ukraine. So I'd like you to describe yourself. Yeah, I mean, I, I cover this in, in great detail in the book because I think there's a lot of um, misapplication of terms, uh, particularly the distinction between what is a leaker and, and what is a whistleblower. Uh, the government argues, of course, they are the ones who decide uh, mm -hmm. who is and is not a whistleblower. Uh, the process of uh, sort of the government accepting uh, your allegations and the government reforming uh, a system as a result of the allegations you bear out. That's what they say is a whistleblower. Uh, and they have laws uh, that uh, sort of establish this process. Now, the problem with that is the laws very strictly limit um, what you can report in the context of what you can report. You can't really uh, take a policy issue to the proper channels, right? Uh, and especially if we're talking about um, any kind of meaningful wrongdoing, right? A, a serious misconduct that arises from a policy decision that could be unlawful or unconstitutional. Um, this is because the whistleblowing laws are designed around this concept of waste, fraud, and abuse. Uh, it's really for someone who is uh, basically abusing their office in a very direct and demonstrable way, any kind of discrimination. So a single uh, right, individual acting, right? A single uh, right, 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 right. Whereas if it's a systemic problem. Uh, if it's the Congress uh, has concealed some crime, the executive has concealed some crime, the, the court has abdicated their role, uh, there's no proper channels uh, to handle that. Um, now, traditionally, the way this has worked uh, is you've got these sort of pure bureaucratic battles um, of official leaks or unauthorized official leaks, uh, where this or that head of agency talks to a journalist they're friends with and they put this out, and the government kind of indulges it so long as it advances the government's interests. Um, but if it's really something that calls into question uh, the systemic prerogatives of power, right, uh, the White House's latitude, the Congress's um, sort of political priorities, uh, then the government would argue there's nothing to protect you. There's no law. You're, you're sort of a, an activist um, more so than, than a citizen. You're a radical. You are quite literally, in their eyes, a uh, criminal. Now, what makes this Ukraine case uh, so unique is there is no history um, in the United States of proper channels working, right, of the whistleblowing right. process actually leading to reform in the national security context. Now, we have seen this work in uh, corporate contexts uh, where whistleblowers go to, like, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, about people who are doing insider trading and things like that. And if uh, the company gets convicted, uh, rewards are paid out, the process works quite well. In some cases, the woman who blew the whistle on Enron, for example, uh, has actually had a very rough result uh, for the rest of her life as a consequence of that. But in the national security space, uh, I just want to be clear, it's different. Um, going all the way back to Daniel Ellsberg in the 1970s, mm -hmm. uh, he this was is charged the under precise— for people who don't know, this is the person who had the Pentagon Papers, which led to right, the, the Watergate investigations. Right. Uh, this was basically the, the Pentagon was uh, at the direction of the White House secretly prolonging the war uh, and costing many, many American lives uh, and foreign lives in the process entirely for political purposes. Um, and yes, as you said, this uh, began the chain of scandal that ultimately uh, dethroned a president. Now, he was charged under precisely the same laws I was. Uh, he faced the same sort of dual loyalty accusations that we always see. Uh, this repeated itself uh, around um, 
the turning of the millennium right in the post 9-11 moment with a senior NSA executive named Thomas Drake, uh, who actually went to the inspector general of the Department of Defense. He went to the Office of General Counsel um, for the National Security Agency, right? That's their lawyer's office. Um, and he also went uh, to the congressional intelligence committees. And after he had made all of his concerns clear, after he had coordinated with Senate aides and everything like that, uh, he eventually was charged under precisely the same crimes I have been charged under. Uh, it goes on and on. We saw Chelsea Manning. We saw Daniel Hale. We saw Reality Winner. So there's no way. Let me, let me interrupt you. So there's no way that you can't not be a traitor. That's essentially what you can't under the way the laws are written. Right. The laws are written such that uh, the Espionage Act, uh, and this is a uh, old uh, sort of one war, World War One era law, 1917-1918, uh, that does not distinguish uh, between taking uh, classified information, uh, secret information rather, mm-hmm. um, they call it national defense information in many cases because the modern classification system didn't really even exist at that point. And if you provide this to anyone who is not authorized to receive it, uh, you are guilty of a felony. Um, now, what this means is there's no distinction between whether you take government secrets, right, um, and you sell them to a foreign government for personal gain, or um, you provide them to journalists at enormous personal risk for the public interest. To the government, these are equivalent crimes. One is no better, no worse than the other. Uh, and the jury, interestingly, under this law, uh, it's what's called a strict liability crime. Um, this means it does not matter why you did it. You are explicitly forbidden from uh, telling the jury why you did it. The jury is explicitly forbidden from considering uh, the outcomes of your crime, uh, such as it were. Uh, did it actually benefit the nation? Did it benefit the public? Or did it harm this? One would think this is actually relevant for question for the jury. Uh, but so far as the law is written, so far as the trials have been held by the government, and again, we've got uh, decades and decades of history here, the only question the jury gets to consider is, was this law broken? Not, was it justified? And this is crucial because even in the case of, you know, murder, homicide, manslaughter, um, the jury considers two questions. One, was the law broken? Two, was it justified? The government argues today under the laws of the United States that talking to journalists is roughly a crime worse than murder. All right, so uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you. So I, I still don't I haven't gotten a definition. So in, under current law, if you want to be specific, you would be considered a traitor. How do you think of yourself away from well, this just, law? Well, just oh. just to okay. clarify, because okay. I think that's an important right. point, right? Uh, we've seen uh, a radicalizing of political language as the mm-hmm. country has gotten hundred percent. I'm not. I'm not. Years, right? I, I, I understand. No, no, I'm, I'm, I, I agree with that, but it's the word traitor there. Um, even, uh, as you say, like professors, people who are writing about this use the word traitor. Well, they use uh, traitor, traitor patriot, which I thought was crime. interesting. I thought traitor patriot, well, sure. traitor activist. You know, it's a mixed whistleblower in a way. There's all kinds of ways you could go with this. And I'll tell you, everyone uses a different one for you. So I'd like to know what right, you— Right, right, right. I want to know what this is precisely you think you are. What, what I want to say. Yeah, okay. um, when we get to the word traitor, traitor implies a specific crime which is completely different. That is treason. Mm -hmm. And treason is actually the only crime that is actually written into the Constitution of the United States Mm -hmm. rather than our statutory code. And I'm not accused of treason uh, by the government. Uh, Almost no one is uh, formally accused of treason. Uh, It has to be in a time of war, Mm -hmm. uh, actively uh, adhering to the enemies of the United States. 
um, and there has to be a specific witness, and so on and so forth. Traitor, treason, all that language needs to go. We use it simply because it's strong language. It's an emotional language. Mm -hmm. And we think we can use it to win these rhetorical partisan arguments. But in the pursuit of doing so, uh, what we are losing is we're losing the ability to talk to each other because we're instantly leaping to, you're adhering to our enemies, right? You're instantly splitting uh, the country and the conversation into an us versus them. And this is why I don't see myself and I don't call myself, uh, you know, traitor or hero or villain or, or any of this stuff. I'm just a citizen. I'm just an ordinary person. You know, you want to call me a whistleblower? Great. I'm not going to apply these terms to myself because I don't think it matters. Okay. The interesting thing about whistleblowing, whether it's Ellsberg, whether it's Drake, whether it's the Ukraine guy today, is it does not matter what the provenance of the information uh, of the allegation is. What matters is the truth of it, right? Uh, the, the whole key behind blowing the whistle uh, is to raise the alarm about what is a happening. Truth, a truth and then it's out happened. of your hands. It's for the system, then. Uh, it's for journalists, then, uh, to look at this, to investigate this, to find the truth of it. And then, uh, hopefully, if it is a matter of public concern, to hold those uh, who are responsible for it to the account of the public, uh, and perhaps to the law. I'm curious, when you're watching what's been going on with the current whistleblowing in Ukraine, how do you look at that, what's happening? Because this was an intelligence officer. This was classified information until the White House released it, obviously. How did you look at that from afar? So it's a fascinating case, uh, precisely for all of this preamble uh, that we've gone through. Um, traditionally, proper channels don't work. And in this case, Proper channels were not working. Uh, a lot of people go, oh, this person went through proper channels, so, so they're a whistleblower. Uh, whether they are or not, uh, I say, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. What is interesting is they were going through official channels. They went to the inspector general uh, right. of the intelligence community, and they started stonewalling uh, the complaint. The White House got involved, and they said, this can't be shared with Congress. And the only reason any of us today know about this whistleblower. The only reason any of us have the transcript of this phone call, or rather the memorandum uh, regarding this phone call, is because someone somewhere, whether it's the intelligence community's inspector general's office, whether it's Congress, whatever, uh, they got wind of the fact that this complaint was being suppressed. Mm -hmm. And then somebody somewhere went to the press and told them about this. They told them the details of the complaint. They told them why it mattered. And this under the laws that we've just described, was actually a felony. Uh, I'm not saying the whistleblower uh, did this. Uh, I would say if they did, it doesn't matter. It's not material. And mm -hmm. In fact, it's a good thing if they did, because the only reason we know this today is then once the press published these stories, everyone in the country knew. Pressure immediately fell on Congress uh, to get to the bottom of this. Uh, the people on the intelligence uh, committees who uh, allegedly knew this complaint was coming and perhaps could have been the ones who told the press in the first place, uh, now had a mandate to lean on the ICIG. They now had a mandate to lean on the White House and get them to cough up more information. But had the system worked mm -hmm. as it was designed, uh, or rather as it was working before the press knew about it, uh, there's a very real possibility we never, or we may never have heard uh, about what was actually going on. And now, uh, as a result, when we see everything that's happening, I, I think it's very clearly 
in the public interest to know the nature of these allegations. Right. So it didn't work, but worked. It got through, <laughs> right, essentially. Well, th- this is this is the, the beauty of the press in, in an open society, right? It is this idea that rules get broken, right? Um, systems fail. Uh, what happens when the courts fall down? What happens when the White House falls down? What happens when Congress falls down, right? When processes fail, uh, not particularly, not specifically, but they fail comprehensively, what then do we rely on uh, when the government is supposed to, at least theoretically, have systems uh, be directed in place. and controlled right, by, by the public? Well, the public can't direct a democracy. The public can't uh, cast an informed vote unless they have an idea of what the hell is going on. Mm-hmm. And, and so this is where the press comes in, I, I think. And this is where we have to hope uh, that the press can make up for these different failures uh, in the process. Unfortunately, in this case, uh, they did. And I think actually that is why we see the press uh, being weaponized in so many different directions. Today, we see people attacking the press. We see the press attacking other people um, because we realize the system itself uh, is failing uh, increasingly over uh, recent decades in comprehensive ways. And so the press is increasingly burdened um, with, I think, an enormous public responsibility the question that we have is, will they be able to fulfill the role uh, that we need them to, or will they end up being captured or, or failing or uh, being destroyed? We're listening to my October 2019 interview with Edward Snowden. We're going to take a quick break now, and we'll be back after this. Searching for what to stream next? HBO Max is where all of HBO meets the greatest collection of movies, shows, and Max originals for everyone in the family. Discover something fresh to watch with new HBO series like Lovecraft Country from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams, or The Undoing, starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. You can also jump into a new Max original like Selena Gomez's new cooking show, Selena and Chef, or The Flight Attendant, a dark new comedic thriller starring Kaylee Cuoco. Ridley Scott's even producing a new series called Raised by Wolves. Whether you want to rewatch classic favorites or finally get into that show your friends have recommended a thousand times, HBO Max has something for everyone. Start streaming today and find your next favorite. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. If you're an early adopter, you get that your devices and your connections need to be fast and help make your life better. But you might be forgetting one thing. Tech should be fair, too. Fairness isn't a new idea but it is to wireless. That's where U.S. Cellular comes in. At U.S. Cellular, people come first. And that means a fast, reliable connection with no hidden requirements and no activation fees. They'll even pay you back for unused data. When you upgrade to U.S. Cellular, you upgrade to FAIR. Learn more at uscellular.com. Let's get to you and talk about the reason you wrote this book. You've been six, seven years, is that correct? Uh, Yeah, over six years. Six years. I I do want to get to regrets and different things like that, but let's talk a little bit about the beginnings of the book because one of the things that I was struck by, because I was also around during the early days of the Internet, um, you you write a lot and very eloquently about the early days, and I I was there when it was made into a commercial uh, thing, when it was released to the public. I was using it at the same time you were. And you you talked about it in almost a romantic style. The internet was my sanctuary. The web became my jungle gym, my treehouse, my fortress, my classroom without walls. You talked about the legend of Zelda, Super Mario, the lessons you got from there. 
Can you talk a little bit about this sort of relationship you had with the internet? Not just because you're ner- like a typical nerdy guy, like that kind of thing, but I think a lot of people f- had these feelings about the early internet, this hopefulness about it. Yeah, this has been one of the things that struck me seeing the the public response to the book, not in uh, you know major platforms and book reviews, um, but just people writing on forums, right? People on on Twitter, um, and they constantly uh, connect with this early passage in the book where I'm talking about how I encountered technology and the internet as a child and, and what it meant to me. And they said it was almost a sense of nostalgia for them. They they remembered it. The internet was a very different place uh, when I was a young man. Now, of course, this is all colored uh, by youthful naivete, right? I was a child experiencing these systems for the first time. But children um, are treated unequally, uh, necessarily, right? Whether it's by parents, whether it's by um, government, whether it's by their school system, any system, uh, right, recognizes they are children, and so treats them in, in different manners. And this is meant to protect them. It's meant to provide a better upbringing, you know, more direction, uh, whatever. But children, more than anything else, uh, they want to be treated equally. And computers at the time uh, were truly blind uh, to age. Uh, they were blind to origin. So long as you could connect, so long as you were able uh, to access the, the technology uh, you had some gateway into this community, you were naturally a part of it. And so I would end up speaking, you know, with like college professors yeah. on old uh, BBSs and things like that. And they would spend all of this time educating me on a one-to-one level. Um, some of them undoubtedly knew uh, I was a child, despite the fact that I very much didn't want to be seen as one. Other times uh, uh, when I did reveal my age, I immediately regretted it. But then uh, people took better care of me. The idea here is that the internet... Because it was a non-commercial space, it was a cooperative and creative space. Everybody was there to create a new community. Everybody was there to connect. Everybody was there to understand and to learn and to share. Now, as you know far better than I do, because you had an adult's perspective at the time, um, the Internet was uh, rapidly being attempted to be commercialized. Mm -hmm. Uh, This led to the dot-com boom and then the inevitable bust. Uh, But what I saw uh, in that period where I was becoming a young man uh, was the... All of these companies that had failed uh, started looking for new business models. And, and what they did uh, was they were creating uh, the groundwork for the surveillance capitalism model right, we see today. Right. Mm-hmm. If they didn't have a compelling product, uh, if they didn't want to set up a factory, if they didn't want to ship things across the ocean, um, what if they could make the product us? What if uh, they could simply transform the Internet from that uh, cooperative and creative space to a competitive and commercial space, if they could simply intermediate as many human activities as they could, uh, if they could make us not build our own sites, uh, but put all of our personal memories, create all of our personal histories, all of our uh, individual connections Mm -hmm. on their platforms and tell us it's okay, tell us to trust them, tell us they're not sharing it and abusing it, which actually when these platforms first were created was true, but they left their terms of service open so they could either be changed at any time. They invited us into a city um, that was actually a kind of trap. And what happened was we got an internet 
that was easier to use, uh, easier to access, um, but ultimately more exploitative. So this disappointment, you, you were talking that surveillance capitalism award used by Shoshana Zuboff and many others. But one of the things that you wrote here was now it was the creative web that collapsed as countless beautiful, difficult, individualistic websites were shuttered. The promise of convenience led people to exchange their personal sites, which demanded constant and laborious upkeep for a Facebook page or a Gmail account. The appearance of ownership, I think this is a key sentence, the appearance of ownership was easy to mistake for the reality of it. Few of us understood at the time, but none of the things we'd go on to share would belong to us anymore. Precisely. I think that was sort of an interesting idea because it really did get, get me some insight to you that one, something that you had cherished had turned rather dark pretty quickly. And it wasn't, it was a short amount of time that it, that it happened. And then the second part of it, and a line that you have in there, um, uh, was that it was permanent, that de- a line you use is deletion has never existed, that it is impossible to delete. <laughs> both both things, right, is that, you, right. that this, is a, this is a cooked environment. And I want to distinguish in a second between the government and the Facebooks of the world and things like that. But talk a little bit about this disappointment, because what you did was you continued to move into a job where that's exactly what you were doing for the government. You were doing exactly the things yeah. that you decried. So, well, it, it took a long time for me to actually reach that role in the government. Mm-hmm. I started on the ground floor and step-by-step step moved up. And I was uh, originally in a, a systems administration role, uh, whereas a maintaining systems that I inherited for the CIA, which was largely human intelligence uh, for many years before I actually moved over to the NSA and started working with signals intelligence and this kind of data collection. It was a long uh, road to perdition, right? And I didn't necessarily realize... Um, Can you distinguish for people the difference between human intelligence? So people that don't understand intelligence, sure. it's called Signet and uh, human. Signet and human. Yes. And then there's Lovent, but we won't get into that yeah, right now. Sure. Uh, but briefly uh, for the audience, um, and this is covered exhaustively in the book for anyone who has any interest in this. There is uh, the Central Intelligence Agency, you know, the Defense Intelligence Agency, um, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. You know, there's a billion different components to the U.S. intelligence community. And then there's the National Security Agency. Uh, But the basic idea is the CIA, traditionally, when you think about this, right, you're thinking human spies. Uh, This is largely a bunch of Americans working undercover uh, as diplomats out of embassies, right? Uh, They're they're make-believe diplomats. Um, And a few people uh, who are working under non-official cover, which means they're not uh, in embassies, they're working, you know, as as businessmen um, that are associated with major corporations or small uh, fake companies uh, in certain other countries. And the only thing they do is they go out to dinner with people. (laughs) This is what happened with Baghdadi, too. They recruited a human intelligence. Precisely. And then they rely on this person, uh, often in exchange for money, to tell them facts uh, that they otherwise wouldn't have access to, right? You were just asking people to tell you about interesting things. That's the entirety of the James Bond spy game in real life, right? Uh, nobody's parachuting mm-hmm. uh, into denied areas and, you know, planting traps and this kind of thing in, in, in that way. That's not how it works in real life. Um, there are covert action programs, but they're very small, very limited. Uh, largely, it's people talking to people and eventually paying them to get them to, uh, to sell out their country. Um, or company, or uh, whatever. Signals intelligence is where, because of the advance of technology, uh, sections of the government went, well, why are we dealing with people? People lie, people cheat, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's all this fraud, we can't be sure if they're telling the truth. Uh, What if we just 
spied on them through their devices? What if we spied on them through their communications that are traveling over the air, that are traveling on cables under the ground or under the sea, right? Uh, whether it's the internet, whether it's your email, uh, whether it's a phone call, all of these different signals in all of these different forms could be captured uh, and then you could analyze these for intelligence. That's the distinction between signals, intelligence. Uh, yes, and that's where you and moved. You, you moved to that uh, as, as you moved your way up into the intelligence. You, moved, you were in the Army for a short period of time. Your family's long has been served in the, the military or some aspect of the government uh, for a long time. But it reminded me a little bit of the—, the you remember he was born on the 4th of July? Have you ever seen that movie? Where he started <laughs> off as sort of this patriotic guy and then sort of got wise to what was going on. So here you were moving to in the lower echelons of the intelligence community, but the signals, the signal part of it, working in Hawaii, and you started to see these patterns. I wanted you to link how you felt about the internet, because you moved into sort of what I would call it like a hyper-patriotic stage, as you thought this was critically important after 9-11. You were near Fort Meade when it happened. What was the influence of that on you? Because it seemed like you moved into, we need to do this to protect ourselves, and we need to right. collect as much into, because it was a fatal intelligence flaw, 9-11, and, and it impacted the government right. in a significant way. So I was at a particularly vulnerable uh, politically age, when 9-11 happened, I was 18 years old, uh, and I was on Fort Meade, uh, which I tell in the book, um, was evacuating on the day the country that mm -hmm. needed the, the most. I was driving past them and seeing people pour out of the building. Uh, the CIA evacuated on 9-11. And uh, with everything that happened, it was, it was a, a moment of national trauma. If you recall, if you're old enough um, to have been there, uh, not everyone in the audience these days uh, is, uh, but many of us were. Uh, every underpass that, that you drove uh, through, uh, every sort of chain link fence you saw, uh, had red, white, and blue Dixie cups, uh, mm -hmm. you know, strung across them that said things like, you know, united we stand, uh, never forget. And then, uh, again, if you understand, my, my father was in the military, my grandfather was in the military, basically everyone uh, that I was connected to had some uh, government history. Uh, it seemed natural to me that I should do my part. And this is how I found myself in 2004, a few short years later, when everyone else was protesting the Iraq War, uh, volunteering to fight it and signing up for the army. And it's because I was completely unskeptical uh, of the government's claims. Uh, everybody who was criticizing them, to me, seemed uh, quite a bit unpatriotic. Mm -hmm. Because to me, it seemed unreasonable that the government would lie uh, about something uh, so consequential, right? Mm -hmm. um, the idea that uh, the government would sacrifice uh, a long-term public faith in the institutions of government, right? Uh, the, the White House, uh, the military, the Congress, uh, everything that we need to keep the system running for a short-term political benefit to justify an unnecessary war uh, going into Iraq for like this whole conspiracy of Cheneyites. Um, to me, it just didn't seem persuasive. The funny thing is that was actually the truth, and now we know that. Uh, and many people didn't need uh, the years of evidence that I needed to eventually discover that. But what this is to say 
is that when you join an institution, uh, when you volunteer to sign up for the government and you go from the army, you go to the CIA, you go from the CIA to the NSA, and you go to deeper and deeper levels, you get higher and higher levels of clearance, you are more and more involved in the system. You start moving uh, from being strictly on the working level to be more at a policy level. You're making proposals. Uh, You are, in a real way, starting to become responsible for the system, which is to say you are becoming complicit in the system. And so to question the system is to question yourself. And this makes it very difficult um, to pull back. It makes it very difficult to develop a form of skepticism. So tell me, I want to talk about you. I get that. You're talking this on a higher level. So you, here you are believing in the government, this massive intelligence uh, disaster, essentially, of not knowing this was going to happen. So everything that had been in place before didn't work. All the different intelligence agencies were not able to anticipate what essentially was Pearl Harbor Part Two, an attack on the U.S., it had a, a, an immediate effect of everybody trying to clamp down with the Patriot Act. Obviously, this was not this is not a surprise. It happened. It's happened every time this has occurred. So here you are, and they are clamping down. And part of the clamping down is moving from individual surveillance to mass surveillance of everyone. Was this not a surprise to you, being in the middle of it, even even at a low level, not to see it? Well, you, you have to understand that I wasn't at that level mm-hmm. uh, at that time for a very long time. When I was right. at the CIA, I didn't understand mass surveillance was mm-hmm. a thing um, because of a, a concept called compartmentalization mm-hmm. um, in the intelligence community. This is the idea that people working in Office A have no idea what's going on in Office B. Uh, and they don't ask uh, mm-hmm. because they don't have, as we all know from the Hollywood movies, uh, need to know. Um, And so the fewer people know that know a secret, the easier it is to protect it. And this is how uh, intelligence agencies work. Uh, So for a long time, even in it, I thought the system was targeted. And the government swore up and down uh, that it was targeted. The government denied in public uh, there was no system of mass surveillance. When eventually, uh, in uh, December of 2005, the New York Times broke the story uh, of warrantless wiretapping the Bush administration, Um, They said, you know, this program was being done uh, for a specific purpose. It was trying to uh, uncover al-Qaeda sleeper cells, and that's why Bush unconstitutionally spied on everyone in the United States. Important to note here, the New York Times had that story ready to go in October of 2004 of Mm -hmm. the election year, uh, an election that was decided by a historically small uh, margin, and they sat on it at the specific request of the White House, decision of the executive editor of the New York Times at the time, Bill Keller, uh, and the publisher, I think, uh, one of the Sulzbergers. And it was only after Bush's very close re-election uh, that we finally got to know about this. Now, in response, the government went, oh, fine, sure, you know, uh, we did this for a good reason. You guys are complaining uh, needlessly. It was proper and appropriate, but fine. If Congress says we shouldn't be doing this because this White House's popularity is declining, we'll stop it. We'll push Congress to pass a new law, an emergency law, uh, called the Protect America Act of 2007, which should have given us a warning it was a bad idea, uh, which retroactively immunized all of the companies that had made the Bush-era warrantless wiretapping program possible uh, from any civil liability, right? Because they had violated the rights of everyone in the United States millions of times a day, and it could have resulted in the largest civil judgments in history. Uh, But Congress wrote a special law just to let them skate by. And the next year, uh, they actually uh, normalized this kind of surveillance uh, under uh, the FISA Amendments Act of 2008. Uh, But just to go back for a minute to to that uh, 9-11 moment you said, 
You said that we didn't know it was coming. We couldn't have stopped it, um, which is not actually the finding. Uh, no, of no, the of course, you, no. They, you, it was you know. an intelligence failure in terms of p- piecing it together properly. But it's more than that. I, I would, I would say um, the government does argue. Uh, yes, it was an intelligence failure. They say we had the pieces we needed to stop the plot. The problem was. Uh, the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, they weren't playing nice together. They didn't right. share the right. pieces. Uh, and because of these uh, walls, uh, these limitations that they had on doing their work, uh, people died as a result. And having worked in the government now since then, uh, I was not in the government at the time, but anyone who worked in government can tell you uh, how this works. I actually see it as a very different failure. Uh, they exploited a bureaucratic failure, which is actually the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, Um, didn't share information with each other because they couldn't. It is false that they could not have. uh, There were procedures in place um, to do so. Uh, They didn't because they all wanted to be the ones responsible for busting the plot. They thought it was a small ball, small time plot. Uh, And government is always engaged in turf wars, right? They're Mm -hmm. always engaged in budget battles. Uh, And so what actually happened, um, and, and we have former FBI employees and things like that on the record who have said this, is that because they didn't imagine it was so serious, they thought it was fine to compete against each other internally in government rather than cooperate. And that's why people died. Now, uh, once the buildings came down, once the harm is suffered, uh, the government pulled the Patriot Act off the shelf, uh, which a lot of people don't understand was already written in advance. And it was a law they just never could have passed. Um, because there was no public support for this uh, extreme level of intrusion. Uh, But now, in the wake of crisis with a terrified nation, uh, they got it. So here you are, and you had a very good description of being in the pineapple field under in Hawaii. You had moved there as a contractor. And it was very interesting how you described how you did it in the Rubik's Cube and everything else. It's it's a really interesting tale there. But what was the tipping point for you? Was it conscience or... You know, you could say arrogance that made you decide to leak these documents was the conscience that made you. I, I, I don't, don't quite understand what was the moment you're like, okay, oh my goodness, they've done all these things. You have suddenly pieced together what others had not pieced together, sitting on this pineapple under this pineapple because you had the access to see what they were doing. What was the tipping point for? Because until then, you had kind of gone along with this. This is the way it was done. Yeah, it was a uh, growing awareness of what was actually going on. As you said, most people in the building, uh, most people in the agency, regardless of their their seniority, did not understand and were actually not allowed to know uh, how everything fit together. I was unusual because I had worked both at the human intelligence side on the CIA. I had worked uh, on the signals intelligence side at the NSA. And I had worked in a technical capacity, which uh, quite unusually, even though I wasn't at the top of the totem pole, Mm -hmm. Uh, In terms of formal seniority, I was high atop heaven in terms of just raw uh, informational power. The godlike role. Right. Uh, If you are uh, the systems administrator, you can see everything. And this should scare us when we think about it in the context of corporations, Facebook and Google. We've written about Um, that But in government, you know, now I can see everything. Right, right. Now I can see everything everywhere. And when I saw how the system fit together, my concerns became more and more clear. But people want the cinematic moment. They, they mm-hmm. want to think uh, there's the golden document that changes everything and it shapes you. But the reality is this is a process that happened over years. What happened was I changed as a person. The skepticism that I lacked during the Iraq War developed uh, over uh, a 
period of years, um, simply by seeing more and more contradictions between what the government was saying in its internal emails to mm-hmm. the entirety of the NSA and CIA workforce about why what everything we're doing is completely okay, uh, and what they were saying uh, under sworn testimony before uh, the Congress, right, mm-hmm. what they were telling the public, what they were telling journalists, and what the actual truth was, the private classified reality of the government's activities. Um, And when I got all of this, uh, and when I saw, particularly in the case of an inspector general's report, which brings us back to official channels and whistleblowing, Mm -hmm. in the wake of that Bush-era warrantless wiretapping program we talked about before, which formerly inside the government was classified under a code name called Stellar Wind, there was a requirement in the Protect uh, America Act and the, the Pfizer Amendments Act of 2008 that said uh, there has to be an investigation into how this happened, what happened, and, you know, uh, who knew what and when. Uh, and they did this. All the different IC components who were involved in it uh, put together a report, um, and they submitted it to Congress. And then they submitted an unclassified uh, version, and that was made public. Now, I had seen that, and for many people who saw this, it was interesting. Um, they, they talked uh, generally about what was going on in government. They talked uh, about these programs in a very abstract way, and it seemed like it was not so serious as was actually alleged. The IC uh, inspector general was really taking the IC's side and saying, everybody blew this out of proportion, and yes, we've limited these things. There's nothing to worry about. Uh, everything's okay. When I saw the classified version of this report, which wasn't until Hawaii many years later in 2012, um, I saw that unlike what we see today when we've seen declassified versions of all these reports that have come out uh, in the last years, normally the unclassified report is the classified report with a bunch of black bars on top of it. Mm -hmm. In that case, the unclassified report was an entirely different document that I believe, uh, and I felt quite strongly, was intentionally written to deceive Uh, the public and probably many members of Congress, uh, because there are 535 of them, uh, and only about 30 of them get the real classified story from the intelligence committee, uh, or the intelligence community. Uh, That's if they're sitting on the committees. And this is where I I started to go, all right, if Congress isn't allowed to know what's going on, if the public isn't allowed to know what's going on, if the executive is knowingly, willfully breaking the law and deceiving the Congress and the public, and the courts... Uh, while they do suspect there is wrongdoing going on, uh, refuse to actually hear these cases, even at the level of the Supreme Court where appeals had reached, um, because they go, well, the plaintiffs uh, can't prove the government uh, is doing this because the facts are classified. The only thing that would establish uh, these things are going on is if we granted discovery to the plaintiffs, right? Uh, This would give the people uh, challenging the government the right to go into the government's documents and go, yes, you knew this was going on. Yes, this is a fact. Because the government is responding, their defense is, we're not saying it's happening. But if it is, it's a state secret. Therefore, the court has no role in this controversy. So there is nobody else. What you're saying, essentially, because you do write this, you say, I was resolved to bring to light a single all-encompassing fact that my government had developed and deployed a global system of mass surveillance without the knowledge or consent of its citizenry. Again, what? Why? Lots of people see this. You're not the only one unless you are, in fact, God. Right. Uh, There weren't lots of people here, uh, but there there were many. Um, and this this did um, well. I should say it wasn't everyone. There were there were many, right? Uh, there were certainly hundreds of people who knew. 
Um, but when you spread this over an intelligence community where I think 1.4 million Americans hold uh, security clearances, mm-hmm. uh, hundreds is not a lot. And the ones who knew about this in many cases were those who were most complicit in the construction um, and operation of the program. And so if they reveal this program, if they admit this program is uh, in a, a sort of wrongdoing, a, a kind of misconduct, they're saying that they are engaged in a kind of misconduct. And so for me, uh, why I brought it forward, um, and again, it took me a long time to actually decide to do this, was I had to think about, well, what happens if I don't? Uh, what does the future look like if nobody knows about this? Um, look at what was happening in the public record. At the time, uh, before I had provided any documents uh, to journalists, um, we had members on the Intelligence Oversight Committees, right? Uh, people like Senator Ron Wyden, uh, who were questioning uh, the most senior intelligence official in the United States, uh, then Director of National Intelligence, General James Clapper, uh, under oath, or rather he should have been under oath at least. Uh, And he asked him things uh, like this. Does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not? Not wittingly. There are cases where they could inadvertently, perhaps, uh, collect, but not not wittingly. Wittingly. Uh, so that was a lie. <laughs> <Wittingly>. <laughs> right, right, right. Not not wittingly. So uh, that, yeah, that so was, lie. That was a, that was a lie. Mm-hmm. And so you were seeing these and said, I must do something. Right. Well, it's that someone has to do something. But so that's why I wonder: is it conscience? Is it arrogance? Is I can change this? What part of you decided that this is what I'll do? Well, it's this conflation of of a conscience and arrogance. Um, there's an argument to be made uh, that any act of conscience uh, is arrogance. Mm-hmm. Um, it means you believe uh, you understand right and wrong. And I believe it was clear uh, and it was plain um, that these programs were unconstitutional. In some cases, they were uh, also unlawful. They violated statute. Um, but beyond that, there's this question of uh, law, Right. Um, And I knew I was certain to be accused of being a criminal. Mm -hmm. But whether we're talking about proper channels, whether we're talking about mass surveillance, um, the law cannot determine uh, right and wrong. And it doesn't even try. The law only determines legal and illegal, which is a very different thing from moral and immoral. Uh, And I thought about uh, what was going to happen to the Internet. I thought was what was going to happen to the future when we had the public losing its seat at the table. Uh, What this was about for me was not surveillance. And this is something that people don't get. Um, Yes, I cared about the internet. Yes, I cared about mass surveillance. Uh, And yes, I thought these programs were violating human rights, uh, both of people in the United States and around the broader world, where 95% of the human uh, population lives. The bottom line is, how does a democracy continue uh, when the government can lie to us, Uh, not just hide things from us, not just keep secrets, that's a different thing, uh, but actively lie to us. Because that exchange with General Clapper and Wyden, uh, Wyden knew the answer to it. He submitted the questions 24 hours in advance. Clapper Mm -hmm. knew he was going to lie going in that. When he lied to Wyden, Wyden sent him a letter and asked him to amend his testimony so it told the truth. Uh, And Clapper did not. And Clapper, months later, after I came forward, after journalists were able to confirm it was, in fact, a lie, he said, well, he wasn't trying to lie, but it was the least 
untruthful, that's a direct quote, least untruthful thing he could think about at the time. So he thought it was his role to lie to us, just to lie to us by the smallest measure possible. And for me, this is, this is the thing that, that, that we miss. Um, and the whole thing about whistleblowing, it's not about me. It's about us. And it always is. Uh, in a democracy, government derives its legitimacy from the consent of the governed. But we all know consent is only meaningful if it's informed, right? Uh, and if we are denied the basic outlines of what the government is doing, we don't need, need to know the names of every terrorist suspect. We don't need to know the names of uh, everybody who's under investigation. Uh, but we do need to know when the government is redefining our rights. Right. I agree with you on that. But in terms of in doing this, in doing this this way, in leaving the country— was there no other way? Could you have done a Daniel Ellsberg and stayed? He stayed and was doing a similar thing, releasing lots of information about a very politicized situation. Was there, because it then opened you up to accusations of being a Russian asset. It opened you up to <laughs> sure. being Well, they accused me of being like, a Chinese asset first. Right, and then, you were Chinese. Uh, when I'm out of China, they go, oh, he's a Russian. You know, if I was in Guatemala, they'd say I'm a Guatemalan spy. We'll talk about whether you're a Russian asset soon. But <laughs> what I'd like to understand is why was this the way to do it? Because you felt that journalism was the only way through. Because there are lots of other ways. And also, were you worried at the same time about the damage that you might do to actual intelligence assets with the information you released uh, that, that was not no, so necessarily it's a great question. just about this. And this is this is actually a different uh, question than what was being asked earlier. Not uh, why did I build the whistle, but why did I do it in, in this way? Mm -hmm. And it's a fair question. So uh, once I resolved um, that the public needed to know this, it was a question of how to do this. And as you said, uh, there's always a concern. So what if I'm wrong? What if I'm crazy? Uh, what if I misunderstand the system? Uh, what if I'm uh, just an arrogant jerk, uh, basically, and my self-importance is going to create risks. This is why I work with journalists. And people don't understand this because, uh, you know, they only hear talking heads on the news um, and, and the allegations that are like third hand. Uh, the number of documents that I have revealed, the number of documents that I have published, that I've disclosed is zero. Uh, what I did was I gathered evidence uh, a corpus of material that I believe showed unlawful, unconstitutional, or unethical behavior on the part of the United States intelligence community. I then provided this to journalists. And these journalists only gained access to the material on uh, the condition that they would agree they would publish no story simply because it was interesting, right? No clickbait, nothing that was just newsy, uh, but could harm national security. Instead, they had to make an individual institutional judgment for every story that they were willing to stand by that it was in the public interest to know this particular story. In all cases, that process was followed. Then, on top of that, I required them to go to the government in advance of publication, warn the government we're about to run this story, and give the government a uh, adversarial platform, uh, basically the right to argue against publication, to say, you don't understand this program is useful, it's saving lives, you know, if you publish this detail or that name, uh, it'll cause harm. And it, again, every case that I know of, this process was followed. And this is why uh, in 2019, uh, everyone who's involved in the reporting uh, is so confident that no harm has come as a result. That's there's not been the, lots you know, of allegations. Lo lots of, lots of but there's been, there, there's been lots Rice, of allegations. President Obama, others felt that you did have da you did damage. Well, no, security. no. This, so this this is this is crucial. They have all 
alleged that mm-hmm. there has been harm, but there has been no evidence in six years publicly presented that there has been any damage at all, right? Not a single piece in six years. And you look, you know, you're a sophisticated person. You've been working in journalism a long time. Uh, you know, we talked before about leaking and whistleblowing. Mm-hmm. Government leaks, you know, nine yes, times a day. Do. Look at this White House, right? And Barack Obama, uh, was feeling very much under pressure no question. Um, in response to the revelation of these programs. Uh, had they possessed any information, somebody died, terrorist attacks succeeded, anything like that happened as a result of these stories, it would have been on the front page of the New York Times and every newspaper around the world by the end of the day. And again, six years have passed, and that's never happened. To me, I, th- I suspect the most galling part is one guy under a pineapple field in Hawaii could get their hands on all this stuff. It shows right. system, you know, if you want to, If you want to talk failure. about the real threats to national security, if you want to talk about the things that should scare you, uh, it is the fact that a contractor, uh, at the time I was a staff officer of government at CIA, right? Uh, but here, I was working for Dell, Right, the Dell computers, and then I was Dell, with Booz Allen Hamilton after even. that. Right, right, not even uh, a good computer guys, company. <laughs> no, right, these guys come into government offices. They sit down at government desks. They take direction from government managers. They uh, work on government missions, but they do not work for the government. They have access to all of this classified material. They can walk out of the building with it, and the government will never understand what they took. To this day. The government says they do not know uh, what documents uh, were taken out of the building and provided to journalists. That should chill people, even if they support me. Edward, it chills me. We're listening to my October 2019 interview with Edward Snowden. We're going to take another break now. We'll be back soon. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Let's talk about the impact of what you've done. And I want to get into, we don't, I, I want to keep talking about it because I want to get into tech today. So, but there was no other way that you could have done this. You couldn't have just done that, stayed in this country, not traveled, tried to travel to Ecuador, not ended up in Russia. Is there was no other way just to stay and face trial here? Sure. Yeah, no, this is, this is a great question. And you mentioned earlier Ellsberg. Um, Daniel Ellsberg is a friend of mine. We both serve on the board at the Freedom of the Press Foundation. Um, and Daniel Ellsberg uh, has wrote opinion pieces, uh, written opinion pieces. Uh, Daniel Ellsberg has told me personally um, that if he were me today, he would not have stayed in the United States. Uh, and if he were me, uh, even if I were granted a pardon uh, today, he would not return to the United States. Um, because the America, uh, American justice system that he faced in the 1970s uh, is not the same justice system that we face today. Um, We did not have the same case law. We did not have the same processes. We did not have the same uh, systems of of solitary uh, confinement and closed courts and classified proceedings that we have um, today. He does not believe that it is possible for a whistleblower in the United States uh, who is charged under the Espionage Act, as I certainly would be, uh, regardless of where I was in the world, to receive a fair trial. And I agree with him. I actually watched a documentary about him called The Most Dangerous Man in America. Mm -hmm. 
in the uh, weeks and months before I made my final decision because I wanted to learn uh, from those who had come before me. And I wanted to do this in the most uh, appropriate way, right? I wanted to try to, again, maximize the public benefit while mitigating any potential risks. There's always going to be risk in journalism in an open society. But can we minimize that and maximize the benefits? So uh, this brings us to the final point, um, which is the single point of failure. Quite simply, I had worked for the CIA. Uh, I knew what they were capable of. We had in the United States uh, programs of torture. We had in the United States uh, programs of indefinite detention, uh, secret prisons. We held people on ships in international waters so we didn't have to report their presence to the International Red Cross. Uh, No less than Barack Obama, uh, who by many would be considered, uh, you know, one of the better presidents, uh, was engaged in extrajudicial killings even of American citizens, far from any battlefield. In the case of Anwar al-Awlaki, uh, and even his child, who was like 15 years old, Abdul Rahman uh, al-Awlaki. And when you look at all of this, and you think about the fact that uh, what the journalists and I were working on here is not a small potatoes thing. Um, it is a government-wide violation of our founding documents, our founding laws, that goes uh, up and down, We had to avoid uh, what I looked at as a technologist as single points of failure. If we were in the United States, all in the same room, at the same time, and they discovered us, and I thought it was very likely, in fact, I always thought the most likely case was that I would never make it out of the United States to meet journalists. I'd be uh, caught before I left the building or leaving the airport. But if we were in the same place at the same time, they could have stopped the story. Uh, They could have kicked in the door, arrested me, uh, searched the journalists, and all that. After that. Okay, so we're in Hong Kong in a hotel room. Right. Why not then come back? (laughs) So this is uh, the question. Uh, And I think it's a a question of responsibility. And and a lot of people look at this. um, There's this face-the-music argument. Uh, And I have had a single condition uh, for returning to the United States to volunteer to face a trial Uh, where I almost certainly would uh, be sentenced to face spend the rest of my life in prison uh, under the Espionage Act. Uh, The only thing that I have asked from government is that they grant whistleblowers uh, the right to tell the jury why they did what they did and for the jury to consider the question of was it justified or not justified. This is the Espionage Act that we talked about before. Mm -hmm. Currently, as we say, um, there is no fair trial possible for whistleblowers because juries cannot consider whether or not it was proper and appropriate. Um, There is only a question of, did you provide uh, classified material to someone who was unauthorized to receive it? If yes, uh, you are guilty. Uh, You only face a sentencing, right? Uh, And it's a question of how many hundreds of years you'll go to prison for. Uh, Remember the case of Chelsea Manning. She was sentenced to 35 years in prison. Uh, Reality winner who uh, revealed a single document to journalists about the case of uh, an NSA assessment where she thought it was in the public interest to know that the NSA believed in the 2016 election Uh, Russian government institutions were targeting U.S. electoral infrastructure uh, for hacking, right? Uh, Yep. And this was published. And it's funny that the media didn't cover this uh, very deeply. They 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 did. went over it. Okay. Uh, Well, no, very very briefly. They didn't go to a wall before. But the thing is, she got uh, five or six years for a single document. Now, in the case of this, what I have to look at, is if I return to the United States and I can't have a fair trial, the same way none of these other people have a fair trial, you just go to jail, um, what is my responsibility to the next whistleblower? So I think when you look at 
Hale and, and Winner and, and Manning, when you look at the law and the way they explicitly forbid uh, public interest defense to whistleblowers, uh, really they forbid any kind of uh, well, fair trial for public pardoned, whistleblowers. Right. When you look at the relationship uh, of the White House to the press mm-hmm. today, um, under both this president, who's saying, you know, they're the enemy of the people, and under uh, the Obama White House, which, uh, whether we like them or not, uh, you have to understand they prosecuted more whistleblowers I get than that. all other presidents combined uh, under the Espionage Act. Um, and then, having looked at that, people try to tell me it would be responsible uh, to perpetuate this system of injustice uh, rather than to try to use my position to reform it and make things better for the next whistleblowers. Uh, yeah, I think that would be irresponsible. You also didn't want to go to prison, in other words. You didn't, and be uh, put in some hole somewhere where no one would see you again. Well, That's your point. Well, certainly no one does, but you yeah. have to understand, I've just said I volunteered right. for a prison right. uh, under single condition. Right. right. Uh, I'm risking the rest of my life in jail, uh, for the government to give a, a very simple concession, which is just go juries, get to assess but whether since then, you've, are justified. Ha- you've written a book, you've had your say, you've done tons of interviews. Would you come back now and face that? For the same condition, yes. Uh, but there that is, has there's not no changed. special conditions for you. Would you do it anyway or not? No, it, it has to have that condition where they'd have to change. You'd have to essentially change the law. Well, think about what you're asking. I understand um, what I'm asking. If I came back... If I came back without precondition, Mm -hmm. uh, what I am saying is that uh, whistleblowers are being treated justly in the United States. What I am saying is that it is proper and appropriate for someone who reveals criminal activity Mm -hmm. on the part of government, for someone who reveals uh, the president is corrupt, someone who reveals uh, an agency is breaking the law, whatever you want, Um, that person uh, is the real criminal. Uh, and they should have no defense whatsoever. I believe you cannot have a fair trial uh, without having access to a reasonable defense. Uh, the government disagrees. Uh, when I've made this offer to the government, mm-hmm. uh, saying, look, if you give me a fair trial, I'll be back tomorrow, uh, the attorney general responded in writing and said, we promise we will not torture you. I do not think that is the fundamental basis right. uh, okay. for a justice system. Okay, we're going to get to what you're doing now. So it leads to the thing, and I want to get very quickly to what you think of tech right now. Um, but w- w- that does lead to the idea that you travel to China, you travel to— how do you push back that idea that you you are not a Russian asset, you are not a Chinese asset, that this was an all part of a, a giant uh, scheme? <laughs> and then living in the Soviet Union, which kills journalists, which has a, a, a terrible human rights— r- record, there you are. It sort of, it colors a lot of people who might agree with you about these these mass surveillance programs. How do you, how do you uh, no, justify it's, it's, that? It's, uh, this, this has been a conversation that's been going on for years. I, I will uh, add one small correction. Okay. Uh, I do not live in the Soviet Union. Oh, I'm sorry. No oh, it doesn't exist. I'm sorry. I'm an idiot. Of course, you live in Russia. I, uh, I know I, that. I live in Russia. <laughs> I even went to the School of Foreign um, Service at Georgetown, so yes, I get it. <laughs> okay. I, I know what so it is. I, I, uh, People don't understand this. People think I went to Russia. I met uh, with journalists not in China. I met with journalists in Hong Kong, right. uh, specifically because it was a no man's land. Mm-hmm. In 2013, people thought that this was kind of weird. They went, no, you know, Hong Kong is like this appendage of China. Uh, they're all in line. But now when you look at what's happening uh, in China, where there's protests of millions of people on the street every day, people suddenly understand um, why it made sense. Mm-hmm. Now, I had to go. Uh, I was en route to Latin America on the way after because I saw it as basically the most neutral place. I had hoped to go uh, to the European Union. 
Um, but they were uh, basically afraid to grant asylum. They all privately told me that they supported what I was doing. They thought it was right and appropriate, and they thought I was a whistleblower. I should be protected. Um, but they knew that the U.S. government was going to retaliate, and they went, you know, uh, Venezuela, the, uh, the Caracas Convention, you know, all of these different things that apply to all these Latin American countries uh, make it a better option. Um, now, if you look at a flight map, which I did, um, you can't get from Hong Kong to Latin America without going the long way around the world, uh, because otherwise you go over U.S. airspace, which, uh, because the U.S. has uh, passenger manifests for every flight in the world, uh, obviously would not have been possible. Uh, so I have to do uh, an air bridge, basically, traveling through non-extradition countries. You have to go through Russia. Uh, you have to go through Cuba. You have to go through Venezuela. And then from Venezuela, you go on to Ecuador. You go on to Bolivia. You go to Brazil. You go wherever. Um, this was what freaked the State Department out, uh, because I think they were worried about what politically they would do if they couldn't uh, attack the messenger uh, and instead had to simply contend with the message, right? Uh, so as soon as they heard I had departed Hong Kong, um, they canceled my passport while I was in the air yeah. uh, and this trapped me in Russia. And so I spent the next 40 days in that Russian airport filing asylum claims in 27 different countries around the world. Uh, and every time one of them would get close uh, to letting me in, um, the phone would ring uh, at their foreign ministry, and it would be either the vice president uh, or it would be the secretary of the state. And they would say, look, we don't care if it's legal. Uh, we don't care uh, if it's uh, a proper assertion of asylum. Uh, we don't care if it's consistent with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which the United States themselves uh, helped draft. We see this as something uh, that's going to make life uncomfortable for us, and there are going to be consequences. They cut trade preferences for these countries, all kinds of things to make them take it seriously. They even grounded the presidential plane of Evo Morales, the president of Bolivia, on the grounds of a mere rumor uh, that I was on board uh, because diplomatic aircraft are supposed to have diplomatic immunity. Um, and they wouldn't let him leave. The entire airspace of Europe uh, was closed to his aircraft until the U.S. ambassador was allowed to walk through his plane with him to confirm that I was not on board. Uh, it was absolute insanity that is uh, unprecedented in history. You know, they were, had a manhunt on for me um, like I was the head of ISIS. Uh, it was crazy. As a result, at the end of this period, um, I applied for asylum in Russia, right? Uh, and they did let me in. Uh, I had one-year temporary asylum. Uh, and I have continued, people don't get this, I have continued to apply for asylum since uh, in other countries. Uh, and when Europe welcomes me in, I will be there. Uh, but look, I mean, people have to think about what they're asking. Now, if I was a Russian spy, why would I go to China? Right? Why, why wouldn't I go directly to Russia? Uh, why would I risk all of those other hops where I could be arrested? Why would I risk, uh, you know, being threatened or interdicted by the Chinese or anything like that? If I was a Chinese spy, why would I have left China? Like, none of it makes sense. And then, when you look at the actual record of people who have been involved in this whole Russian conspiracy plot from the government side, uh, you see there's no evidence for it. The FBI themselves said they believed that I acted alone. I didn't have any help. Mm -hmm. uh, Dianne Feinstein, very senior uh, uh, from member California. of Congress and intelligence official, said she has never seen any evidence, any evidence at all. Remember, she has access to classified information uh, that I was involved with Russian intelligence. And just uh, the second part of your question, uh, if you want to restate that about um, 
how am I okay being in Russia, yeah. uh, given their, their human rights record? People uh, do not realize um, that I have been uh, very vocally, publicly yes, uh, critical have. of the Russian government's uh, human rights policies, uh, despite the fact that it is a risky thing for me to do. Uh, the Russian government, uh, should they choose to, could kick me out at, at any time. Um, despite that, uh, I have criticized uh, the Russian government um, and the Russian president uh, by name uh, for signing uh, surveillance laws surveillance legislation into law uh, that I consider to be a violation of human rights. I have, during Russian elections, uh, been, while they are happening, tweeting videos of ballots being stuffed, uh, evidence of corruption, mm -hmm. um, when the Russian government has sought access uh, to Russian people's uh, means of communication, popular apps like Telegram that they were trying to get cooperate with them. Uh, I condemned it. When you see uh, Russians protesting in Moscow, uh, I have been defending their right to protest, uh, even when there have been crackdowns in place. And even just, you know, like two weeks ago, I had major stories in the Russian media uh, that are only available in Russian, so they, they weren't covered in the U.S. press, um, that are saying, you know, get rid of Snowden. Uh, he's criticizing the Russian government too much because uh, I said the mass raids uh, that were brought against supporters of uh, Alexei Navalny, he's a Russian opposition yeah. leader, were uh, deeply problematic. And this is the thing. Uh, when you look at the basic facts, uh, when you look at, one, uh, Russia was not my choice of destination. When you look at, two, uh, I took no uh, classified material with me. I provided everything to journalists and then destroyed my own copy. And then three, uh, despite my best interests, uh, I have been publicly critical uh, of the Russian government and its record. Uh, if there are people uh, who are not satisfied uh, by this, it really raises the question, what would satisfy them? And I think the answer is nothing. Well, probably coming back to the United States would be my guess. But let's get to, let's, I know we've gone a little bit over, but I'd really like to get your thoughts on, because I think the, the implications of you, I think about this a lot. And someone had written, uh, Edward Stone was a man who had just one thing to tell us, really. He did tell it. And some listened, some believed, others didn't. The fever is now broken. Do you think you had an impact? Because one of the impacts I do think you had is the relationship between it really, uh, revealing the prison programs, the extent of them, the spying on the tech companies. I think it changed the relationship between tech companies which, and, and government, which had been rather close, to make it a much less dis – in the wake of that, I recall the anger from tech companies didn't know quite how much they were being spied on, for example. That was a really big revelation for a lot of people in Silicon Valley. A lot of people feel it led into not being as cooperative when Russian disinformation campaigns happened and that they had a destroyed relationship. The second part is – Despite the fact that you revealed all this, companies like Facebook, uh, like Google, like Twitter, like all, all of them have so much information on people now, and it's been weaponized by, by, the, on, on all, by Trump, by the Russians, by everybody. These platforms have been really turned into mass surveillance on a scale that is out in the open for people that I don't think they understand quite how much information these companies have on them. And so what you were seeking to stop was sort of taken up by a lot of these tech companies. Do you look at them that way? I mean, what's occurred is a bad, an inability to stop these platforms from doing exactly 
what you complained of, and then at the same time being um, weaponized by malevolent players like the Russians or the Iranians or whoever. No, I, I think uh, so. I'm not blaming like you for Trump, Edward, at this point. But, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, so for those who are interested in uh, what changed, the, the last chapter of the book has a lot of detail on that. Um, and I think actually a significant amount has changed. Um, strictly on the technical side, as you say, um, I think it's a misunderstanding to say that the revelation of mass surveillance has actually made the tech companies uh, do this kind of thing more. Um, I think what is misunderstood is the fact that the tech companies were already doing this mm -hmm. before yeah. 2013, but they were doing it invisibly. We didn't understand uh, that it was happening. They were denying that it was happening, in many cases, under the cover of government uh, that was backstopping their lies. Um, and as a result, uh, we had no ability to try to resist it. We had no ability to try to reform mm -hmm. it. Um, we had no ability to try to create better systems uh, that would not be so vulnerable. Um, Through encryption or something of, else. Uh, right, exactly. Uh, sort of pervasive encryption and so on and so forth. Which I believe is really one of the major ways out of this hole uh, that we've been dug into. The problem, the fundamental problem today, is that these major tech companies have... Well, let, let's simplify it. Um, Mark Zuckerberg was born within one year of me. Mm -hmm. And I think when you look at technologists as a class, we are at a fork in the road. Uh, and as a class, there are people um, going one way and another. There is a class led by Mark Zuckerberg that is moving toward the maximization of technological power and influence that can be applied to society. Uh, because they believe uh, they can profit by it, or, you know, rightly or wrongly, um, they can better use the influence that their systems provide to direct the world into a better direction, right? They want mm -hmm. the technocratic future, right. where it's still nominally democratic, right? Uh, but they have access to all the levers of influence to shape our behavior, to shape our buying decisions, to shape our voting decisions. Um, and then you have... Uh, this other fork in the road where there are people who are of, uh, shall we say, a closer to like mind to myself, uh, where they go, the advance of technology is inevitable uh, and technology uh, can do very good things for the world. But we need to understand uh, that there must be limits on how that technological power and influence can be applied. Because all these guys on the other path, right, they, they talk in very abstract terms. They talk about data collection, right? Mm -hmm. They talk about data analysis and exploitation. It's not data that's being exploited. It's people. Data is about people, right? It's not data that's Thank being Thank you for making that it's distinction. You. That's it's exactly right, I must say. And this is what is sort of lost in that conversation. Uh, the, the breakdown between uh, technology companies and government um, I, I don't actually think it's, it's uh, accurate or fair to say um, Russian influence campaigns or whatnot are, are uh, stopped by this change in 2013 mm -hmm. because Twitter provided all their information to the government. Facebook provided all their information to right. the government on these campaigns. You can read the reports online. The fact that they would require the government to go through some legal process to demand that data is a good thing, not a bad thing, because any judge in the world 
will stamp a warrant for that kind of request. Um, if it's proper and appropriate, legal process is not a restriction. The only people who resist this are uh, people on a completely different fork in the road, government power maximalists, um, who want that institution to be able to work so the most w- efficiently. But were way. they asleep at the wheel during this time period of when this was occurring? I actually don't think they were. Um, and this is uh, a, a, a different argument. Um, but look, in my final position at the NSA, um, a lot of people think I was uh, entirely and always a systems administrator or mm-hmm. a systems engineer or uh, sort of an operations and systems guy. Um, I was working uh, in an operative role uh, behind a mass surveillance desk, uh, and I was working surveilling Chinese hackers um, in my final position for Booz Allen Hamilton in Hawaii, right? This is the position where I actually laid my hands on the keyboard where I could bring up anybody's email. The X score. Uh, what is it called? The X? X key score. X key score, right? yeah. X key score is Google for spies, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, it's our ability to uh, sort through and query all of the collection we have for all of our programs uh, that affect digital communications and a lot of phone-based communications. And the thing here is... Uh, I was assigned to uh, one of the hardest targets that we had in China because that's what they were bringing extra people on, right? Mm-hmm. The, the ones that we already have uh, good data on, we know what they're up to. Uh, it's easy to sort of follow their activities, but it takes a lot of time uh, to develop those kind of analytics for a new target that's unfamiliar. So they got to bring on new people. That was, that was me. And, you know, you just go step by step on that. I talked to the guys uh, who had dealt with Russian teams. I talked to the guys who had dealt with Iranian teams. I talked to the guys uh, who dealt with uh, counterterrorism activity, right? And when you look at all of these guys, none of them are invisible, right? Some of them are better than others. And again, I was working on one of the hardest teams, so I know mm-hmm. what, what the good trade draft looks like. And here's the, the thing. Even if you're using encrypted communications, even if you are very good at what you do, every communication on the internet has a source and a destination. It has to get from phone A to phone B. It has to get from computer A to computer B. And so it has to travel through a path uh, from one system to its internet service provider, to its upstream router, to its you know, communication service provider. It has to go transatlantic over cable. It's got to go through you know, England. It's got to go through France. It's got to go through Germany. So it's got to go through Denmark. The point is they should have And then known. all the way to Russia, right? Yeah, right? So you can see the chain of communications, even if it is encrypted, even if they're very careful going from here to there. So they and this should is the have thing. Um, where I think when the U.S. intelligence community says things like, we believe it was the Russians, uh, I actually do believe they could have um, the evidence to prove that. And I think it would be actually quite trivial to produce. Uh, What should concern us is when that information is not shared, but it is shared in some cases. Like, for example, when uh, North Korea was accused of hacking Sony, the FBI put out a report Mm -hmm. and said, here's our evidence, here's why we believe it's the case. And then when we see people like Reality Winner, showing that the NSA does have, at least internally, uh, these assessments that say we think it's this people doing it for this reason. Uh, There is no reason uh, that these kind of reports can't be declassified and should not be declassified. And so this is what I'm getting to. Not that the intelligence community didn't know or that they did know and they didn't stop it, but that overclassification is a much greater threat to our uh, democracy Uh, the excessive embrace of secrecy is a much greater threat um, than increased transparency. What about these companies? The government would argue— What about these companies themselves? What was their responsibility? The overclassification is not something that might have hindered them in knowing what was happening. 
Well, actually, it is because um, when well, you think about you your do Facebook, have companies right? facing state actors fighting state sure, actors. Sure, sure, and they they all have different units that mm-hmm. try to investigate mm-hmm. these things. Some of them are better than others. Some of them are have more realistic budgets than others. Mm-hmm. Um, but the bottom line is, uh, when you're dealing with intelligence in this kind of scale, it's a team sport. Uh, and when you are talking about people. Um, who are looking at Chinese hackers, Russian hackers, whatever, people who are top-tier adversaries who actually know what they're doing. The people working at Facebook, the people working at Twitter, these guys aren't uh, NSA-tier analysts, and they don't have access to NSA-tier systems. They can't see uh, communications in Russia, right? They can only see things that are connecting to Twitter and Facebook servers. Now, if the U.S. intelligence community shared indicators of Russian activity or Chinese activity with Twitter and said, hey, you know, uh, search your network, see if these IP addresses logged into accounts, mm-hmm. see if there's any kind of mass account campaigns coming from this, that, or the other, or dealing with this, that, or the other, connecting to this website or this document, these companies could do more. So actually, I would say, yes, overclassification does have a lot involved with this. This is not to excuse companies from their responsibility to police their own networks, which I think we all agree they've done a pretty bad job uh, of doing. But I do think there is um, an actual dangerous impulse from a lot of people who see the bad behavior that's happened online uh, to go, look, uh, we want to deputize Facebook and Twitter and whoever to be the Internet police. And we want them to occupy a quasi-governmental role uh, where they go, these people are allowed to use our network. Uh, These things are allowed to be set on our network and these things aren't. There are good arguments for saying, you know, why this might be. Uh, you talk about hate speech. You talk about terrorist propaganda. You talk about child exploitation, right? That's their um, responsibility. Right. But once you get to that point where you go, uh, all right, uh, we're moving out of these things and we're going into, you know, we say this thing is a lie. We say this thing is fake news, which are, again, uh, they have deleterious effects on democracy that we don't want to exist. But if you say... Facebook gets to decide what can and cannot be said on its network. Facebook gets to determine what is true and false on its network. What you're doing is you're setting a precedent where whether it's uh, driven by U.S. legislation, uh, whether it's driven by court orders, all these other countries have laws and courts too. Um, And if you set a standard, a precedent um, that says uh, we are going to start limiting or placing restrictions of freedom of speech on Internet platforms— that are procedural, they're standard, they're routine. I fear that when we look at history, um, these kind of policies have in the longer term always caused greater harms than they have prevented. It's not that the initial arguments uh, were the great harms. Um, it's that the precedent enabled so what, the far greater so harms So what do we do after. about the massive amounts of information these companies are collecting? What do we do about their, the, the, the lack of transparency and the fact that people are mass surveilled by these companies, too? I mean, in terms of well, their activities, right. how would you regulate them? Uh, this is the hard question. Again, I, I, just like when I came forward, I didn't want to be the guy mm-hmm. uh, who published anything. I didn't want to say what the public should and should know. I didn't want to say how policies should be changed. I don't want to be the president of the Internet. I don't want to tell people how these things should be changed, because I think there are folks that are better qualified to do that. But in my opinion, what I can say is we have serious liability um, laws in every other sector. If you produce medicine and put it on the shelves and your baby aspirin kills babies, uh, you get sued. You go to jail, right? If you build a car uh, and it catches on fire and kills people, 
<laughs> you get sued, your company might get shut down, you might go to jail. We have no software liability laws mm -hmm. in the United States. And that is why every app that's out there is so fundamentally insecure. We do not have any criminal liability laws for companies that aggregate what are effectively databases of ruin, mm -hmm. right? Where even the most innocent life has enough information in there to ruin them. Right. And I think there's a lot of ways to deal with this. You can uh, limit what these companies are able to collect. Uh, and I think it's very, one of the easiest things to do is limit retention, how right. long companies can have data. That's the first step is go, all right, you guys can collect anything you want. We don't care. But you can't keep it for more than a year. Right. right. That's that's the bottom bar. Um, and then you slide the bar down um, and then you start to limit the kinds of collection uh, that they can engage in. And bit by bit, uh, you go uh, shift that ratchet until you've got something that serves uh, the public interest uh, a little bit better. All right. I want to get to questions from Twitter, which actually are kind of fantastic, including one from Monica Lewinsky, of all things, in, in this weird, strange <laughs> world that we have. What did Monica I'll ask? tell you in a second. Um, so in terms of being the threat, do you find you continue to think the government is the bigger threat to our in the digital sphere than the big, giant tech companies? I'm not sure that, that I've ever said the government is a, a bigger threat than companies. Which one is then? But I, I think it's actually a mistake uh, to see them as different different threats. Mm -hmm. um, that is actually uh, one of the biggest misunderstandings of this. When we think about that that first slide, um, that prism right. slide uh, that everybody on the internet uh, got excited about, mm -hmm. that showed Apple, you know, Google, Facebook, sure. Microsoft, Yahoo, all of these guys were cooperating with the government secretly beyond what the law required. You think about the NSA. You think about uh, think about. Let's take Facebook for example, right? Facebook's internal purpose, whether they state it publicly or not, uh, is to compile uh, perfect records of private lives to the mm -hmm. maximum extent of their cap are. capability. And then exploit that uh, for their own corporate enrichment um, and, and damn the consequences. This is actually precisely the same uh, as what the NSA does. Um, Google does, uh, has a very similar model. Uh, and they go, oh, we're connecting people. They go, oh, we're organizing data, right? Um, but uh, we can see privately what they're doing, right? You open your weather app, and it's communicating with Facebook because someone baked the Facebook APK into, or SDK into it. Um, and you didn't even realize that. You don't see it. It's intentionally kept invisible to you, uh, and yet it's collecting material on you. So Facebook has all this information about all of these people. But what is the limit? The limit is everything that Facebook has collected they have access and total dominion of. Google, the same. They have access to everything that they have uh, collected, and they have total dominion over that. But what makes government such a unique threat uh, in this context is that government has access to everything that Facebook has. Right. And everything Google has, and everything Verizon has, and everything AT&T has, and every other company uh, that they can get their, their fingers into, right? Um, so the scale of the government silo is not limited the same way that a corporate one is. Uh, now there is, uh, on the other side, government is restricted uh, in some ways by the Fourth Amendment. Um, whether it's federal government, state government, government generally, uh, when you're talking school systems and things like that, the Fourth Amendment actually restricts their activities. Facebook is not bound by the Fourth Amendment. Google is not bound by the Fourth Amendment. Or the First Amendment. <laughs> Precisely. I always try to explain I mean, that this to is, people. This is the concern uh, that I think we miss. The United States is perhaps the only developed democracy in the world. 
that does not have a basic privacy law. Yes, yes. Uh, for standard compu- consumer information. I know uh, that. We've got medical information in some contexts, but that's I discuss it. this intensively all the time. I'm, I'm shocked by it, the fact that we don't. Do you imagine we will? We definitely will eventually, because if we don't, <laughs> yeah. buzzards will be picking the bones of, uh, you know, what remains of our society. Oh, wow. Edward, that's dark. Okay. Um, <laughs> all right. I want to get to some questions from Twitter, but I want to ask you one last question. The apps created, you know, by Russia and Chinese government, like TikTok and others, uh, are making people, you know, Charles, Chuck Schumer just said we have to investigate this. Are they less safe than those created by U.S. companies? Is the hysteria valid or not at all? I mean, it it depends on your threat model. Um, When you are looking from a defensive standpoint in architecting a system uh, to be more secure, right? Mm -hmm. Because perfect security in in the uh, computer context doesn't exist. You go, well, what is the risk I'm trying to mitigate? Uh, Who am I trying to protect this information from? If you're trying to protect information uh, from the U.S. government or from a U.S. company, uh, it might actually make sense to use a foreign app. Um, And that's obviously going to make the U.S. Mm -hmm. government nervous. But if you're trying to uh, protect information from the Russian government or the Chinese government, you definitely shouldn't use a Russian app or a Chinese app, right? Uh, So the answer on that is always, it depends. Mm -hmm. Uh, Who are you trying to be protected from? And this is fundamentally what I I think people miss about the particular danger of mass surveillance. Mm A lot of people go, uh, if I'm not doing anything wrong, you know, if I have uh, nothing to hide, I have nothing to fear. Uh, Setting aside the fact that that is a line originated by Joseph Goebbels, uh, Mm -hmm. the Nazi minister of propaganda, um, and it should alarm us when we see uh, particularly members of Western governments repeating it, privacy exists to protect you from systems of power regardless uh, of what you're doing. If you have to prove your innocence, if you have to prove why you need a right, it is not a right. Um, If you have to establish that you're not unusual, that you are not a threat, that you are not different, what is the purpose of the right? Uh, The majority that is uh, saying, I'm normal, they don't need rights because they decide the laws. Rights exist to protect the minority Mm -hmm. against the majority, right? And people seem to be missing that today. Uh, Saying that I don't care about privacy because I have nothing to hide means I don't care about anyone who might have something to hide. Uh, And you are destroying their future for your convenience. Yeah, one of the the good lines in your book is that the— American Revolution was about liberty, and the Internet Revolution is about privacy. It's the same word. Liberty is privacy, yeah. which is interesting. It's just a different time. It's a different time. All right, I'm going to ask some questions, and, and then I'll have one last one of my own um, from the Internet. Let's let's go into a couple. Personal tech. Honestly curious, what tools exist today to make your life easier? Is Signal still the standard? What can an average person do to protect themselves while enjoying the benefits of smartphones? You are constantly under surveillance by the Russians, presumably, even, correct? No, I'm, I'm constantly under surveillance by everybody. Everybody. Okay, they all watch Israelis, the Okay, what, what do you— Yeah. Are you, that, I don't even want to think about what that means. But what do you, tools do you use to make your life easier? Are you just— are, assuming everything's public. Um, I, I don't normally like to give endorsements of particular tools okay. uh, because the landscape changes so quickly. Right. Um, I have used the uh, signal messenger, uh, wire messenger. Um, I use cubes as an operating system. Uh, this is a more secure um, kind of operating system that creates compartmentation. So if one of your uh, applications, for example, one of your uses like your browser mm-hmm. is hacked, it doesn't mean you lose everything on your entire computer. Right. 
I would be interested uh, in mobile operating systems for people uh, not to use uh, standard Android provided by Google with all of their uh, sort of Google services malware baked into it that tracks everything you do, or even uh, an Apple uh, device. Although iOS is much more privacy respecting than Google's equivalents, um, they have some serious security issues right now. There is Graphene OS, uh, which is an Android variant more that's much more secure. Um, developed by a, a young man by the name of Daniel McKay, um, who I've spoken with and I, I think quite highly of his work. Um, and then there is, uh, which I cover in the book quite extensively, um, the Tor Project, which mm-hmm. I believe is yeah. still uh, the most important anti-censorship network uh, on the Internet today. Okay, let us go into uh, Russia. Have you, besides have you turned, that was lots of them, um, by the <laughs> Russians. Um, I think we already covered that. Okay, yeah. Um, what have you learned much Russian? What does you think of the Russian media coverage of America? How is your job in Russia going? Do you get a vacation? <laughs> um, yeah, when when people think about uh, like my my life in Russia, I'm a nerd, right? Mm-hmm. I've always been an indoor cat. I, I don't go out to the club. That that's not my scene. Uh, there's not much difference between whether I'm staring at a screen. Um, in an apartment in New York or Tokyo or Moscow um, for my daily life. I speak a little bit of Russian, uh, but but not very much. Um, I, I don't watch uh, Russian media. I get all of my news online. Uh, my daily life and my work is primarily the Freedom of the Press Foundation in mm-hmm. the United States, um, where we're working on projects to make sure that sources and journalists um, can maintain the confidentiality of their communications um, even in the midst of what we see is an increasingly hostile environment uh, all around the world. All right. Ask Snowden if he supports the Magnitsky Act, uh, formerly known as Russia and Moldova. It's a, it's a bill passed by the Congress intending to punish Russian officials responsible for the death of the Russian tax accountant Sergei Magnitsky in a Moscow prison in 2009. Do you support that? <laughs> I mean, I'm not familiar with the details of any particularized legislation uh, that's not related to surveillance. But what I will say in general is I believe uh, in protecting and enforcing human rights wherever they are. Uh, If Russia is violating uh, human rights, uh, they should be held to account for that. If the United States is violating human rights, they should be held to account for that. Uh, I don't care if it's France. uh, I don't care if it's Fiji. The only way that we can enforce human rights is by imposing consequences for their violation. Uh, And so we should do everything we can uh, to support efforts to do such. Okay. There's just about three or four more. Do you still think the deep state is more dangerous than private corporations? What do you think of the Russian and Trumpian rhetoric about the deep state? Uh, again, I think there's a presumption in this question that I've said something previously that I'm not sure is supported on the record. Um, when I talk about the deep state, uh, it's a very different thing than when uh, sort of Donald Trump talks about the deep state. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I say the deep state, what I'm talking about is uh, the career government, really. These are very senior officials uh, in intelligence agencies. Uh, not a conspiracy, right? Uh, these aren't men in uh, smoky rooms, um, but who simply survive presidents. They're not political appointees. Uh, they see presidents come and go. Uh, they see the calendars change, but they are always there. And so they have long-term policy preferences uh, that if they're blocked by one president, uh, they can simply try to institute them under the next president. Um, And over time, they are extraordinarily effective in in doing so. And this is why, unfortunately, we have seen 
uh, the policies of the United States government become more and more authoritarian <laughs> um, for the entirety of the existence of these agencies, right? Ever since you saw uh, JFK saying things he's like he's going to, you know, smash up the CIA and scatter it to the winds, um, you've seen people working over decades uh, to make sure that doesn't happen, and they've been very successful. Is that a greater threat? Um, uh, again, I think it's completely unrelated mm-hmm. uh, okay. threat in a different context. Then but I, I do think. Um, but the Trumpian rhetoric the, around deep state is very different. That's a weird conspiracy yeah, it's, theory. It's goofy. It, yeah. It's 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 yeah. it's it's fantasy. It's a different thing. It is true, of course, that the intelligence community can try to sink White Houses, mm-hmm. uh, but that's not specific to Donald Trump. That happens under every White House. You have uh, someone like Barack Obama who campaigned saying he's going to end warrantless wiretapping, saying he's going to shut down Guantanamo, saying that's not who we are, that's not what we do. And after less than 100 days uh, in the chair of the president, uh, where he has these guys coming into his office every day, he goes, ooh, you know what? Maybe I won't do that. Uh, There's a reason for that. Yeah. All right, a couple more. How do you release the stranglehold companies like Facebook and Google have on our personal data while building something new that compensates us for our participation and not the other way around? Do you see a new internet? I mean, the internet that you so loved when and when it started. Yeah, I mean, we we already see a global awareness uh, among young people and uh, academics and uh, sort of the older, uh, now regretful generation of technologists uh, who built the first generation internet. Um, thinking about how they can make it better. I'm um, thinking about people like Tim Berners Lee here, who I believe are positive forces on the internet, um, and they're going. Well, how do we uh, correct for all the problems we see today? When you think about what is causing all of the Internet's ills today, I believe they derive uh, largely from a single mechanic, which is the centralization of data. Um, The more Google knows about you, the more Facebook knows about you, um, the more they are able, uh, even intelligence services, to create permanent records of private lives, the more influence and power they have over us. Uh, There is no good reason why Google uh, should be able to read your email. Uh, There is no good reason um, why Google should know the messages that you're sending uh, to your friend. Facebook shouldn't be able to see what you're saying when you're writing to your mother, right? Today, in most cases, they can because communications are encrypted between your device and these companies, uh, we are beginning to see an increasing shift to what is called end-to-end encryption, which means while your communications may pass through Google servers or Facebook servers or any other intermediating uh, entity, they are encrypted between your device and the person on the other end of the communication, the person you're actually writing to. So the only people who can read the communication are the people at the ends of the communication, not all of these faceless men in the middle. The closer we get to these um, paradigms, uh, the more the balance of power shifts. And now these companies, now these governments uh, begin to need asking for permission, uh, whether it's from courts or whether it's from people. All right, three more tiny questions. Do you believe you're guilty of any crimes? I mean, God, I'm committed, guilty of so many crimes. Are, are you guilty of any crimes? Have you sped? <laughs> you know, have you jaywalked? Jaywalked. I've jaywalked. Um, that, that's, that, that's the thing. Um, you can't exist in society okay. today without Okay, I, I think they're talking crimes. about the big ones. I'm going to let that one go. You did answer it. Do you believe that people wouldn't know about mass surveillance if you weren't for you? Um, the question is uh, really more public consciousness. Uh, there were people 
uh, who had good grounds to believe uh, mass surveillance existed or mm-hmm. even had a certainty that mass surveillance existed uh, before I came forward. Again, there had been reporting on this. There had been court cases uh, about this. Um, but it didn't penetrate the, the public consciousness because it was allegation, right? Uh, it was speculation. And this is what people miss, again, about the importance of 2013. Surveillance was the topic of conversation. But the importance of the conversation was about democracy. Uh, It's so clear today um, when we see all all of the allegation, all the rhetoric being passed around, that if we are going to forge a public consensus, uh, we have to have access to a shared set of facts that are mutually agreed upon. And what 2013 did was it moved the conversation from speculation to certainty. Um, from allegation to fact. And the distance between speculation and fact in a democracy is everything, because it does not matter what you know. It does not matter what you are sure is true. It only matters what you can prove to other people. Although you could argue a certain malaise sets in and everyone just accepts it. But that's another another topic. We weren't going to get into that. (laughs) You know, people are like, yeah, I'm being spied on. I got it. But but uh, in that context, I think it's actually very um, common to say people don't care, to say they accept it. But I've given talks all I around think the people world care. all different ages about this. And the response that I get um, when, when uh, I hear questions about that, when I ask about that, is people actually care. Mm-hmm. They care very much, but they feel powerless to change That's a very it. fair point. Uh, and so they adopt a period, uh, a uh, position of uh, like laissez-faire, I don't care as a psychological coping mechanism, yeah, because otherwise you are being victimized, and that's a difficult thing to live with. All right, I'm going to read the first uh, sentence, and this is the last question. It actually is from Monica Lewinsky. My name is Edward Joseph Snowden. I used to work for the government, but now I work for the public. It took me nearly three decades to recognize that there was this distinction, and when I did, it got me into a bit of trouble at the office. <laughs> made me laugh out loud. <laughs> yeah, a bit of trouble, Edward. Um what would you feel, this is from Monica Lewinsky, what would you feel is the best ending to your story, i.e., where does he hope to see himself in five to ten years? And I would add on, it, it seems like a lonely life, Edward, what you've done, where many people think you're a spy, other people think you're a traitor, some people think you're a hero, but you are essentially by yourself with, with Lindsay, uh, who you've since married. Uh, and a cat. I'm sure there's cats involved. Um, <laughs> apparently, you love cats. It's going to say, actually, uh, I'm. This is the irony um, that I think uh, a lot of people don't understand or appreciate about technologists. I was far more alone before 2013 than I am today. Uh, as you said, I'm with Lindsay, uh, and hopefully, I'll never be alone again, um, which is a great comfort, uh, even in exile. But I, I signed up to serve overseas, right? I, I volunteered to go uh, to Geneva, a place I didn't mm-hmm. speak the language. I volunteered to go to Japan. This, for me, from my perspective, is just another foreign tour on behalf of the United States. Um, I'm just working for <laughs> the people broadly rather than an agency. But when you think about that, that thing, I have never been more connected uh, to a wider world than when I'm looking at a screen. And to a lot of people, that seems weird. Um, but for me, that's what I love. I like to be able to reach um, different people in, in different places. And I think this is the fundamental promise uh, of the Internet. It ties us beyond distance. It ties us beyond culture. It ties us beyond language. Um, and it builds bonds of fraternity that can create an understanding. And that, for me, is the great hope. We are today living in a time uh, of division. Uh, and we are living in a time of constant exploitation 
Uh, and it is because an imbalance of power. Uh, when I think about the future, I don't think about, uh, you know, when I think about what the good future looks like. It's not the good future for me. It's how we heal. Um, it's how things get better. Uh, if things get better uh, for the Internet, if things get better for the United States, uh, they will get better for me. And there will be a day when I will be home. Thank you. All right, Edward, I have to say, I think you're still in love with the internet. It may have never existed, unfortunately, but it's really interesting. <laughs> that was very... But that's okay. Like, that, that, that disagreement, that, that space um, for just completely contrasting ways to see the same things, that spectrum uh, of human perception, that's what makes it beautiful. So do you still believe you're Varix? <laughs> that means you know, speaker that, that, of the truth, or Mendex, speaker of lies. Uh, all, all of that stuff is uh, misinterpreted, you know, as me back. No, I know that. I'm that, teasing that, you. That um, but I will say there's one moment in the... I, I, the thing is, sorry, just to, sorry, to get ahead. to that. People say, Virex, speaker of truth. I don't want anyone to trust me. Um, that's actually the point. The whistleblower doesn't matter. Uh, the provenance of the information doesn't matter. The authenticity of it, the truth of it, that's what matters. It's okay to doubt me. It's okay not to trust me. It's okay to think I'm a bad guy. Fine, but use that skepticism that I lacked so many years ago and then apply that to the people in society who actually wield power, who actually wield influence, uh, not whistleblowers who are going to spend uh, so much of their life in exile. Right. Um, I will uh, say one of the most uh, gripping parts of the book was you looking at the kid in Indonesia uh, uh, through the screen. Yeah, it was... Not a good way to see people across the world. Yeah. I think that was a great moment uh, in the book, and I would recommend people read this. Edward, uh, thank you so much. This has been a very much longer than we thought, uh, but it's a really terrifically written book. Joshua Cohen helped you, a novelist, is that correct? Uh, yeah, so uh, I had, was very fortunate. I've got a, a good a friend of mine, one of my closest confidants and lawyer, Ben Wisner. Um, uh, he's a very literary guy, and he had a very literary friend, uh, Joshua Cohen, which for me, I had never written a book on my own before. Um, he's one of the greatest novelists uh, I believe yeah, alive he's today. Yeah. And so he was a tremendous resource um, to help me structure this and think about uh, how I could best tell my story. In any case, I really appreciate it. Uh, if anyone, whatever your opinion about Edward Snowden is, you should read this book. It's a really important embracing document about where we are. And I do believe uh, in, in, in part, I, it's hard to figure out why you did what you did, but I think you did. Uh, there, was, there was a great um, romance with the internet here that's a really interesting part that I was surprised about. And also uh, some of the uh, thoughts on where we should go. We'll see what happens to you over time. <laughs> we, we definitely will. If not, I don't speak Russian either. And I hope that you keep speaking out, especially about the issues of transparency and, uh, and the use of data against uh, its citizenry and the lack of transparency. And that is perhaps the greatest uh, contribution, whatever, again, people think of what you've done and how you did it. Um, people understanding and understanding what they're consenting to is, I think, the most important part of any message that you or anyone else is delivering. In any case, thank, thank you so you. much. Uh, thank you. Thank you for everything you do in uh, keeping oh, Silicon we'll Valley honest. All right. <laughs> it's not working, Edward. It's not working in any way. All right. Thank you so Stay much. Free. All right. Good luck. Thanks again to Edward Snowden for coming on Recode Decode. And thank you for listening. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer is Erica Anderson at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Don't forget to subscribe to Pivot with Kara Swisher and Scott Galloway for fresh conversations about tech, business, and more every week. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. 
We'll be back here with another Best of Recode Decode episode on Monday. Tune in then. HBO Max brings all of HBO to your fingertips, plus an epic list of new Max originals. Whether you're into animation, classic movies, or binge-worthy series, HBO Max's suggested collections are curated by real humans, not robots, so you find the right thing to watch every time. With thousands of options for you and the family to choose from, it's the streaming platform of your dreams. HBO Max, where HBO meets so much more. Start streaming now at HBOMax.com. Hold up. 